to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James with 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Stuart Everson, Learning and Development Manager at National Bank Independent Network. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Stuart, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Cheers, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, first of all, your accent belies your location because you're a Scotsman in Canada, if that's right. right. Um, so could you give us a brief summary of your L&D career to date and what you're doing in Canada? Yes, absolutely. So I started my career in the UK and Scotland um, at the age of about 24. I came out of university and joined a graduate scheme. Um, not so popular in Canada, but most people in the UK will be familiar. That's kind of when you come straight out of university and get stuck into a career. Um, and I joined a UK bank there and moved down to Southampton at the time. And a career in retail banking, I guess, maybe wasn't as rewarding as I initially thought it was going to be. So after a couple of years of doing that, I decided, look, I kind of thought to myself, is this it? Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? So I really was still craving some adventure. And there was Commonwealth visas at the time. So you could go to South Africa, you could go to Australia and go to Canada. Canada seemed like a straightforward choice. So I came over and that was about 11 years ago. So that's how I started. And actually, I should say that was my first exposure to corporate training programs was uh, with that bank. And they put a bunch of us who were in our early 20s in Belfast, of all places, for five weeks. So I don't think I learned much apart from the names of every bartender in Belfast. And I felt very, very sorry for the people that had to run those programs because I don't think any of us retained anything. So that was my kind of first exposure. But I got into L&D because once I'd come to Canada and, and once I had been here for a couple of years, I decided that it was enough. It was kind of time to start a career again. And I, I had to go back in at kind of the entry level of, uh, of financial services. And after doing that, I was working in client services and I saw a position come up for a trainer, knew nothing about it, managed to kind of blag my way through an interview. Uh, so hopefully the people that done that interview never never see this. But uh, when I got the job, I, I realized I better get up to speed and start doing some courses. So that's what I'd done. I started going to night school and I was learning about L&D. And when I think back to that first role now and the way that I approached it, I'm absolutely mortified. Uh, I think I made every mistake that you could but it was incredible learning experience. So that was where I started. And then moved to another part of the bank that had a more developed L&D team. And then eventually ended up um, leading the L&D team a couple of years ago. And so I've really just been building on that. Um, and along the way, has been incorporating new perspectives and rejecting a lot of the stuff that I initially was taught as well. I mean, I'm happy to get into that more if you want, but mm. I think a lot of it's been shed in what isn't useful as much as taking on what is useful. Yeah, I think it would be a good time to get into that because you and I, Stuart, have been in touch for a few years uh, and mm -hmm. it seems um, over over those conversations that you've, you've been wrestling for some time between what's expected from and within learning and development and what you see makes an actual difference. So what do you see at odds between the expectations and the purpose of L&D? I think the fundamental mismatch, as you mentioned, it's a mismatch in expectations. And I think it's one of perception. I thought about this. Um, there's a perception, I think, among stakeholders that learning teams should go through the motion. Or it's maybe not a perception, it's an expectation. 
um, repeatedly ad nauseum often so that we can feel better. I, I think that L&D interventions are often at least so that we can feel that we're doing something. Whereas the purpose, I believe, should be to make people's lives easier through making their job easier to do. And I think the harsh reality of that is that it's not achieved by repeatedly going through the same delivery process with the same canned content. And I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir with you, David, here, because you've been an inspiration for a lot of my thinking um, and a lot of your articles and your um, your ebook. I'll plug for you if anyone's listening, you can download it. Um, but it was good. It was very. Uh, it's a very insightful um, book, and also uh, looking at people like Nigel Payne as well, who have been sort of inspirations for me. But I think until we understand the reason for poor performance, you can't really move the needle on it. And so often these reasons are complicated. And the unfortunate truth, I think, is that they require large-scale changes in the organization more often than not. And these are often changes that are painful to absorb. So we go back to running the same sort of script again, the same repetition. And something that I wanted to mention was that that doesn't mean, at least in my opinion, that we don't just run training interventions sometimes because they give employees satisfaction, right, or client satisfaction or boost. You mentioned this in the, the Forbes article recently that as long as we're aware that that's what we're doing, then that's okay. And I think that's there's a time and a place for it. But it's dangerous to be under the illusion that it's creating meaningful behavior change when it's not. So I think we have to mm. we have to understand when we're doing something because it gives engagement a boost versus doing something because we think behavior will change even though past results show that it won't. Yeah, there's a. Um, I, I'm completely with you. Um, sometimes I could come across as uh, um, as completely anti-training, uh, but uh, but I think that uh, that that rather than that, um, I think that uh, that that training is the panacea or the go-to. It's uh, it's an oversimplification, and I think that uh, that um, it's been the 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 learning and development stock in trade for for a long long time, um, but uh, but only in the absence of actual analysis. Uh, I yep. think that when you're when you're making broad assumptions about what uh, an employee group or a cohort should be doing within their role, then you fuel that assumption with a generic or standardised training course. But if you truly understood the work context uh, and uh, a cohort's inability to uh, deliver the expected and rewarded behaviours and results, then you're likely, as, as you've suggested there already, unpack far more than uh, a capability, skills or knowledge gap uh, and much more around um, uh, other factors which might be uh, processes, systems, it could be relationships, uh, it could be access to resources and unless all of those things are on the table and we truly understand the blockers to performance and results then everything is just, I, I mean to, to, to say it's potentially a waste of time is um, uh, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, yeah. But um, but but so so many training courses are built based on large scale assumptions, and so it's not so much the training course, but the application of a training course over a poorly defined need. Uh, I think is uh, uh, is a is a massive frustration. Absolutely, and I think there's two things going on. It's what one is that we maybe just become path dependent, and with and it's a case of just not putting your head above the parapet. Um, in cases when there's big change going on. But secondly, I think there is a genuine reluctance. I'm not saying that, and I don't mean in any kind of nefarious way, but I do think there is a reluctance to dig deep in the 
kind of fear of what we might find sometimes. And I think organizations are guilty of that. They don't want to prod too much to start asking too many questions because we don't really know what kind of Pandora's box that we may open. Um, and I think when it comes to going back to just the employee engagement thing for a moment, that does play a role. I can think of um, maybe, for instance, we decide to offer some canned content on soft skills or presentation skills or something that employees think is important to them or not think is, you know, it potentially is important to them. But we don't, it's unlikely that many of them are going to come in, for, go through this and come out with something tangible to take away or anything that's actually produces a meaningful change. But it does make them feel like their organization values them. It does make them feel like development is a priority. So I think that's, there is cases where, I don't want to say going through the motions is justified, but I think there is cases where it does serve a purpose, but it's just understanding when you're serving a purpose like that, which is more about employee morale, and when you're serving a purpose to do with actually changing the way people do their jobs, understanding their frustrations, and making their lives easier. So Stuart, there's something you've mentioned a, uh, a couple of times, and it's uh, uh, something that you and I have in common. It's our frustration of what you've called canned uh, content, uh, others may call generic or off-the-shelf L&D solutions that are so heavily relied upon within our industry and the problems that come with, with, with doing so and, uh, and over-relying on those. How do you sum up your position on what you call canned and others might call off-the-shelf L&D? So I think I would sum it up by going back to early examples of watching com mandatory compliance courses. And, and I think if anyone um, has worked in financial services, they'll probably have the, their blood will be running cold at the moment because these were very, very <laughs> difficult things to sit through. And they have come a long way, to be fair. They're a lot better now. They really try and make them engaging. But when I think about it, I remember sitting in my sort of entry-level job in my late 20s, watching one of these at the end of the day. And they had used an example of keeping client data private. That was the kind of crux of the example. But they used a dummy scenario to paint a picture. And it was, you're at a restaurant with a high net worth client and he asked to see some documentation of bank assets. Would you A, give it to him, B, tell him it's against company policy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I remember looking at that and almost being annoyed because the example was this guy sitting with this high profile banker with his rich client in a fancy restaurant. And I was sitting there in my boring job just thinking, this isn't relevant. And now I just feel worse about myself. So being a little bit hyperbolic with that example, but I think unless there's a way to relate material to someone's world, it's always going to be a mess, right? So I think to sum up my position, it's inevitable that it gets used sometimes when there's a regulatory knowledge requirement mm. or something that needs to be signed off large scale, for instance, maybe some of the DEI initiatives that have come across lately might be a good example of that. You have something that organizations are trying to catch up with it, they need to be seen to be doing something about it. So they're going to roll out large scale content like this. But for 90% of the scenarios, I would say it should not be relied upon because what it does, I believe it does solutions people with the whole process of L&D. Because if your only experience of going to the LMS is to do these kind of mind numbing courses, then you're going to become disillusioned with all of it and you're not going to look for content that's relevant for you. You're not going to feel good about doing it. So they have to find a way, and by they, I think organizations have to engage with our L&D teams to find ways that if something becomes regulatory and it has to be consumed by the whole organization, that doesn't mean it has to be consumed in the exact same way. And I think it becomes a little bit lazy in that sense. And 
I mean, I don't think people, I would say 90% of the audience, if I was going off a gut figure, that is, are not retaining that information at all. Yeah, I'm completely with you, Stuart. I've worked in finance, so so I... I think I've had a similar experience as far as compliance and regulatory training is concerned. But during my time at Disney, which wasn't heavily regulated, uh, but still relied on uh, generic or off-the-shelf uh, e-learning, I mean, it was awful. It was dreadful. I remember um, uh, being uh, provided with a new flagship uh, first-line manager um, e-learning course, uh, and it, I mean, there, was, there was a big fanfare about it, and I, and I looked and... I mean, it didn't relate yeah. to anyone's job. Imagine being a brand new manager. You're sitting there for the first time and go, right, what do I do first? I go, right, the first thing you do is set your <laughs> visions and your mission. Go, uh, no. Hey, like, I mean, it, re- it really is. It's, 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 it's almost like it's been written from a textbook by somebody who's seen a picture <laughs> of a manager once uh, and then decided to write a course. I mean, that, I mean my, my views on it are um, that, that regardless of how good and I'd say, you know, good in inverted commas, the, the content is, you have to be really, really lucky to appreciate and, uh, and guide people through the very unique culture of yeah. their organization because uh, managers or employees, core contributors, leaders don't operate in a vacuum. And the, the, the experiences that they have um, and therefore the, the capabilities that, that they need to develop aren't generic but what we do is we 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 buy these vast suites that we think that um these vast content libraries and think that because there's a lot of content then surely there must be something in there for everybody but uh, but what i'm hearing from you is that you know from a regulatory perspective and certainly my uh, experience of uh, of non-regulatory and and skills based the aim is to educate an individual on core skills that may be transferable, even though I don't understand your job, I don't understand your your profession, I don't have any um, relationship or understanding of your culture, and yeah. yet this is likely to help. And I just kind of think that that in the last 15 years, when we've pretty much been able to Google anything, I think that that by providing what you know, I suppose what what learning and development may may judge and assess as better than a Google search um, version of content. I just don't think it's enough. Um, and you know, some some uh, research that uh, that that um, we've done quite recently on um, what people. Uh, what real people, not just learning and development, what real people consider most effective uh, when it comes to learning. Two thirds of people said that learning from peers and colleagues uh, was uh, uh, was the most effective. And of course, it is. it's rich in the context in which people are expected to perform. But only 29% said that the onle- online learning um, experience and content, and that includes uh, e-learning, um, virtual learning and MOOCs, only 29% of it was deemed effective. And, and you look at that stuff and, you know, my first thoughts were, wow, 29% is more than what I thought, um, because there is such an over-reliance on solutions that don't understand the problem. I mean, does that make sense? hundred percent. Isn't it weird uh, how L&D teams over, over time have become to assume that the only Thing that is the only LD solution that exists or can exist has to be packaged or some sort of course that's published. We see absolutely no room or scope for connecting the parts of the organization together that can help each other. Mm. And there's, there's been this kind of war where we say, well, 
and, and it, it's founded in, it's a good idea that we don't want people just learning from other people because they're going to pick up bad habits. You don't, the learning isn't consistent. That's all very true, but the, we almost try to replace this completely rather than trying to improve the way it was done, which is where a lot of the real sort of gold lies. And I can think about this in my own organization. And um, I, there's a general belief, I think, um, not among everyone, but there's a general belief that, well, the longer they're in the kind of classroom learning, the better they're going to be when they, they get into the job. And any time where we connect learners together, i.e. those that are new to the job, but those doing it, it's almost seen as, well, why aren't they learning? But hold on a minute, this is this is the lion's share of what they're going to learn because this can't be replaced. And it's the same when you come back to speak about management training. Like the, the first day you get there, you're probably more interested in how to approve a time off request than you are about having, you know, the eight different uh, skills to have a difficult conversation or or whatever things are prioritized. Or if you turn up as the only person in the organization that now has a mission statement, you're going to find that maybe your first couple of months as a manager are actually incredibly difficult and somewhat alienating because you've come into a culture um, and the, or sorry, I should say that you're coming trying to promote a culture that isn't there yet. So absolutely. So I think they, they, they fail in all of these situations. And as I say, there is room for them on maybe these larger rollouts, but it should be used as a kind of last resort, I think. Mm. And I once heard Elliot Maisie say in conversation with Bob Mosher on the Performance Matters podcast that many in L&D confuse their role with publishers uh, in relation, that is, to digital content solutions. I interpreted this as meaning that providing learning isn't an aim that's actually required in organisations. It's an L&D engineered issue. In the absence of content, we need to plug a content gap, seems to be the rationale. Now, Maisie went on to say yeah. that what's actually required is the right stuff in the right format at the right time for the right impact. So how do you interpret this situation and analysis by Elliot Maisie and any others, if uh, if you wish? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in it. And I think going back the last couple of years, which is still fresh in our mind, unfortunately, we think about COVID. During COVID, L&D teams seemingly could not help themselves from publishing anything. Mm. It was just anything that could help would be published. And it was almost as if L&D teams were assuming the responsibility for the sanity of employees worldwide. We saw content sort of flying in from everywhere. Courses on managing remotely, five modules on self-care, God forbids the worst, uh, the dreaded resiliency courses, right? These things that I really would shake my head at and looking back, I can't believe was this sort of um, go-to solution. So I'm not saying that they're not well-intentioned and I think they are. I think organizations aren't sure what to do. So they start thinking, well, we'll deliver learning solutions to, to help guide us through the situation. Some cases they may be helpful, but I do wonder how many managers, people managers potentially head behind some of these in lieu of actually checking in with what the people needed. Is it more useful to let to remind people that the company assistance line or some of the benefits, thinking more of an North American perspective than maybe in the UK, but some of the benefits that you have under your organization that could help you at this time in terms of either financial assistance or whether it was emotional support. But I always just think, and I had, I had this experience with young kids during COVID, but if you're sat at home with them, say with three kids who can't go to school, they're trying to do online learning, which was you know a disaster for young kids. You've got Wi-Fi issues, right? Because they're all on Netflix. Your Teams meetings cutting in and out because all your kids are on devices. Uh, I remember at one point in Canada, I'm not sure in the UK, but they banned taking kids to the park so you can't take them outside. Uh, and you get a self-care e-learning module through to help you through it. So I think 
there is this propensity to see them as just a purely publisher of content in any kind of situation. Um, and I think COVID for me was a, a great example that really highlighted it. I don't know if it was it the same in the UK. Did, did you see that kind of response from L&D? Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Um, and, and I thought that, uh, again, it's, uh, it's really well intended and, uh, and learning and development really did align to what the biggest challenges were in the organisation. The first one being, how do you work remotely? Uh, how is this different than when we're in the office? Um, there was something for first line managers as well about how do you manage somebody that you can't see? Um, uh, pivoting yeah. perhaps more from uh, towards a uh, an outcome uh, or output focused uh, management style rather right. than uh, an observation one, uh, and then yeah, and then moved into well being. But I think that that um, I, I mean I've, I've spoken on the uh, on the podcast before about what I've, my problems with well being uh, solutions in organisations is that organisations are responsible largely for um, for the well being uh, being out of sync, um, uh, and so unless you're yeah. you're calling out. Uh, some of the um, uh, the the ways that the culture in the organisation will have a negative impact on your well-being and helping people to assist that, then it doesn't matter how many um, well-being resources, um, subscriptions to me- uh, meditation apps, or uh, or or, or that, that you provide, because a lot yeah. of the time the the um, the 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 overwhelm or the um, uh, the the the, the problems that employees need to face are cultural. Uh, they're not, they're, you know, that, that can't be addressed with, with generic solutions. Again, uh, talking about generic solutions to specific problems. But what we're saying here, Stuart, is that, that um, well, what we're certainly not saying is that L&D shouldn't use off-the-shelf or canned solutions. But the over-reliance on these to make predictable and reliable impact on performance is unrealistic. So how have you used yeah. off-the-shelf solutions to better effect? Oh, I'm not sure that I have, to be honest. Mm. I think I'm, I'm probably guilty of a lot of the things I'm criticising. So I, I wouldn't say that I've got a secret solution to using off-the-shelf solutions. I've used them to fill time or to meet needs quickly. That's just been a reality of it. Um, I have a small team and sometimes we do rely on what's already available to meet demands of stakeholders. And again, that comes back to sometimes doing things because it fills a need or an organisational demand. So I don't want to... Uh, pretend that I'm immune from every single um, part of this. I'm as guilty as anyone from doing it from time to time. But when things are really important, for instance, when there's a business impact at stake, then I always always avoid them. So I think it's more just about assessing when they should be used Mm. um, and understanding that you're probably not going to get a meaningful change from them. You may raise awareness, for instance, you may, um, again, create a little bit extra engagement. You get, you may give morale a boost. You may improve client satisfaction. If, if you have a client, for instance, that's not so happy, um, you may help to smooth the relationship over for a couple of months. But it's it's a short-term solution to give a boost when, when needed, but it should never, for me anyway, be a replacement for something that has a little bit of focus behind it, some actual in-depth analysis, some um, research into what's required. So I don't see it as this, I, I can't say that I see a better way to do it. I think there's just better ways to deploy it and pick in the right situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. I'm with you, Stuart. I think that um, uh, if, we, if we're absolutely clear, the reason that we buy a vast uh, suites of, on, of, of, of online learning is because there was none before, right? Like, like it's a fully, yeah. it's a completely L and D engineered 
solution to an L&D problem. Uh, that there's a gap in the yeah. curriculum uh, and in order to plug that gap, we'll just buy some generic content. It's almost a devaluing of the problem uh, because, you know, like I've asked the question to a lot of learning and development people, um, like how much how much e-learning do you actually do? How many times do you go to your your LMS and your content and you actually yeah. do this? And, and one time I had somebody say to me, well, it's not my learning style. And you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not sure there's any talking to you if I'm, if I'm absolutely honest. Yeah, yeah. Because... You know, if we don't if we don't take our own medicine, then then I think that that's a, a, that's a, an, an issue in itself. But I think the market has a lot to answer for in selling va- these vast suites of uh, of off the shelf content to address non contextual skills gaps. Again, in um, uh, uh, in inverted commas, based on generic assessment assessments that are coincidentally both supplied by vendors and addressed with their off the shelf content. Uh, now, when critically yeah. assessed, anyone can see that unless content relates to the actual work and the context in which it's performed, then it's incredibly difficult to actually develop skills. And the market still pushes versions of, you know, again, in, uh, in um, inverted commas, complete this course and you will be skilled. Uh, and I see that on LinkedIn. I've seen that on LinkedIn in the last week. Complete version of complete yeah. this course and you will be skilled, which, of course, is absolute nonsense but how do we in L&D rise above this noise and nonsense and do more stuff that actually works Stuart it's a good question uh I'll I'll, I'll buy myself one more to think about it by just saying that when you when you mentioned learning styles there that's probably the first thing I mentioned very at the top of this conversation about starting to reject things I think that was the first thing what I remember sitting and learning about uh, and kind of night courses and going hold on a minute this doesn't seem right uh, this like i i can't see how this is a practical uh, theory behind anything so i mean that that term does make my, my blood run cold a little bit so just to, to pop that to one side but um i think when it comes to your question here how do we rise above it i think it's about resisting and temptation because the course is such an alluring solution and the problem that we have is that once a company's paid money for it, mm-hmm. they're invested in its success because no one really wants to admit to themselves that they just paid a lot of money for something that hasn't made an impact. So you'll see very little um, willingness, I think, to really do a deep dive on some of that. So I think you have to step back and spend the time uh, up front working on what the actual needs are. Mm-hmm. And so this begins with doing something that we seem to be terrified of talking to the people that do the courses. Mm. This is something that many L&D teams don't want to do. They want to remain quite distanced from learners because they don't want to hear necessarily anything that creates work or anything where they highlight that that solutions aren't uh, working. So we should want to create training interventions that make an impact and then relentlessly share it with senior stakeholders on a one-pager or a presentation, however you can, because if you don't share the impact of the intervention that you've taken the time to do, then you'll never really get the track record of that you can continue to do stuff that works. And that's going to buy you more time. So I think having senior stakeholders is a huge part. They need to be on side and they need to give you the time. So you need to convince them that you need longer, and not necessarily longer in terms of publishing, but longer to analyze situations than rolling out courses. Mm. And you have to explain to them why courses don't work in their generic form. And that isn't done by quoting uh learning and development theory um it's not done by taking them through all the kind of deep analysis it's done by showing them how it impacts business results mm-hmm. and how 
if you take an extra bit of time to go through a proper analysis of, uh, you know, points of friction, employee dissatisfaction, whatever it may be, then you can create something that will actually have a meaningful result from a business point of view. And you have to get them on site the first time, I would say, then buy yourself a little bit of credibility. Um, so yeah, there has to be data to show that your intervention works and then share it with them because you're going to need their support. You won't be able to do it all on your own. Yeah, completely. Yeah, good tips there. Um, uh, so um, what do you think the risk is to organisations, employees and L&D if we persist with off-the-shelf solutions that promise so much and deliver so little? I don't know that it's a risk. I don't think that this is something that's pushing people out the door for me. Mm. For me, this is just a, it's a missed opportunity to actually make a difference. Yeah. L&D solutions will always kind of make people feel okay, I think. Though, generally speaking, they'll fill out smile sheets afterwards or, or their, you know, the, the immediate survey afterwards. And they'll, they'll have a pretty good feeling about it most of the time, I think, because they'll usually have a facilitator or a course that's well presented or uh, well facilitated. There's usually, I don't know, there's donuts and sandwiches a lot of the time, these kind of things. So people generally get a little bit of a boost. So I don't know that there's a big, uh, that if there is a risk, it's that we're not fulfilling the potential the opportunity presents. So I would see it as it's more just a missed opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's. I think that's. Uh, that's very level-headed. Uh, as we look to uh, to wrap up the conversation, Stuart, if the listeners reflected mm -hmm. that their off-the-shelf solutions are not delivering for them, I think they need to do something different. What do you suggest they do first? It's hard for me to pontificate too much because I don't know the constraints that every team might be working under. But what I would say the first thing is, if you can buy some time, that's the most important thing and take a step back, then that's the beginning. That has to be the foundation. You need a little bit of time and a bit of breathing space. And then you have to work out the following. So the first thing has to be, what's the business goal? Because that has to start, that has to be the start of everything. I don't want to sound like a ruthless capitalist, but you can't get anything done in an organization unless it supports the business mm -hmm. goals. So you have to understand that first. And I think, and again, like you've talked to so many people about this, I'm merely just repeating ad nauseum the same point, but I think it is really important. L&D teams need to be a little more assertive when speaking to senior stakeholders in the organization and actually advocating themselves as drivers of business and not some niche department that rolls out well-being courses. Mm -hmm. So everything has to start with a business goal. Then secondly, nothing revolutionary here. I hate to disappoint anyone listening that was hoping for some um, sort of secret sauce, but what indicators show there's a gap between desired and actual performance? Because as we know, and David, I'm sure you know very well, they're generally, or not always, but a lot of the time, there isn't any indicators. It's usually it's run on a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. um, what do senior stakeholders think is happening? Getting their opinion on what their view and what's happening. And then speak to people performing the job function and yeah. understand what the actual reality is and what they need, not what they want to learn. That's the, what the, the, the one question that should be avoided. And please don't survey people and say, what do you want to learn? You'll get all sorts of weird stuff yeah. back that doesn't help them. But asking the right questions, what prohibits you in your daily job? What kind of constraints do you face? What would help you make your job uh, more effective? What would help you? Uh, to be more effective in your role and then if there is a training intervention and i think a lot of the time that's a big if how can it be quick to the point accessible easy and relevant we've had this conversation in the past just casually but um and you maybe stopped me going down a dark path which was you don't need to wait and get you know your 100 grand a year lms solution in place mm. if the company uses teams and you've got something that keeps coming up 
can he create a Teams channel and post a quick resource on there and is that going to solve it? Now, it's not always going to be that simple, but again, that's even if the training intervention is required because as we've mentioned, a lot of the time when you get into this stuff, there's a larger organisational um, cultural problem often going on. And then that's a bigger conversation and that depends really then it's no longer in your control. That depends on senior management's willingness to want to change that. So I don't know if that actually helps. I, I, I think that's um, that's how I would approach any situation, but starting from the business goal and having the time to do it, I think is key. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, uh, that everything we discussed on this podcast around challenging uh, why we're actually going for off-the-shelf solutions. And the thing is that unless you understand the problem, everything looks like a potential solution. So I think the long and the short of it is understand the problem that you're seeking to address and do so, as you just mentioned there, Stuart, by speaking with the people that are responsible for the work. I think you can't, you really can't go wrong. You can't do, as anyone that's worked in a large-scale organisation will know, you can't do anything without support mm. of the C-suite. And you have to be willing to talk to them, but you have to be willing to talk to them and be able to phrase frame things um, in the way that they're sort of used to digesting information. So, i.e., short, not data driven, yeah. with business clear business um, indicators at stake. But actually digging deep into the the learners, let's say the people performing the job role and understanding the situation, I don't know that there's any other. I don't know of any other way to do it than that. I think that's the, it takes a little bit of time. It's intensive. And sometimes you don't get the answers that you're looking for. And it's certainly not as attractive as being able to buy a course. But I think that's that's why it works because it is, it's the, it's the right option, but it's usually not the easiest. Yeah. That's brilliant, and what a what a way to uh, to wrap it up, Stuart. It's been a huge, hugely valuable conversation, uh, a one that uh, that one that's uh, long overdue. So thank you very much uh, for your insights, and uh, all's left for me to say, Stuart, is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. The allure of off-the-shelf content and programs is strong, despite the evidence of our eyes and ears. Even the very best content suites struggle to gain more than a modest number of views, and it's close to impossible to equate spend to actual impact, and yet it's the biggest market in L&D. As I discussed with Stuart, unless we see PAR simply providing learning and aim for impacted performance, we'll continue to waste time and money. What we're in organisations to achieve is far too important to make do with generic content that makes very little difference. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn for which you'll find the links in the show notes as well. And goodbye for now.